what I would say is I don't think we've walked away from a deal in Canada because we said we can't believe that we can put together the right team to execute against this plan. So I think there are people here or there are people who are willing to come here or there are people who are willing to be part of those stories that allow us today to pursue most of the things that we want to pursue. You know, again, is it perfect? No. Is it is it a Boston where you can steal 10 people from just around the corner? No. Right. And th- but that ultimately goes to this whole concept of building vibrant, vibrant ecosystems. Right. I mean, I, I think the government spends a lot of time worrying about how do we not lose that company to an acquisition? That's the wrong mindset. We need to think about how do we build a, a sticky ecosystem where losing any one company is irrelevant. Welcome, everyone, to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Peter Vandervelden is president and CEO of Lumera Ventures. He started his career at Knopp Biosciences, and prior to joining Lumera in 2005, he was a founding partner at a merchant banking boutique. Peter now oversees the overall business operations of Lumera and is a core part of the senior management team making new investments out of the recently closed Lumera Capital 4 Fund. With 32 years of investment operating experience, Peter has participated in building companies from startup through to expansion, and he's been involved with companies in the life sciences, information technology, and computer sectors. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. Third time's a charm. Yeah, completely my pleasure. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Fantastic. So so let's let's jump into it. I know your time's tight. I, I've read in a bunch of places that, that you've said in the past Canada lacks a national health innovation strategy. And, and that often leads to conflict and competition between sort of the innovation programs of the federal and provincial government, which in this country ultimately end up paying for healthcare. So I want to unpack some of that. And, and I really want to sort of focus on a couple of things, including the people, the place, the policies, and the purse strings, which I talk about capital. And we'll touch on all of those because um, I think they're all relatively important. But I do want to get your thoughts sort of ultimately on where we are now in Canada and where we need to go. And, and so that's really going to focus it today. But before we start, maybe you can give me just sort of a brief arc and the listeners a brief arc of your career and kind of how you ended up um, in biotechnology and health innovation and not working in some academic lab or working in a pharma company or all the other options that you probably have on the table. So I don't tell this story very often, but I'll, 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 gi- I'll give you the full context of the story. So I, gr- I grew up in a household with a pretty severely mentally handicapped sister. Um, and you know, if you've gone through that, it changes how your family looks at the whole world. And so for me growing up in that environment, going into medicine or something like medicine became part of the driver because it felt like me, for me, a way to give back. And I don't know that I knew it at the time, but as I look at it in hindsight now, you know, it was one of the great things about being in Canada, right? The social infrastructure, the connections, the ability for, for a middle-class family, and we were truly an immigrant middle-class family at that time, you know, to not be bankrupted by having, you know, a, a child like my sister, you know, was fantastic, right? And, and it allowed my parents to still have a normal life and for me to go to school and to do all those things. So I, I thought that was the road for me. You know, when, when I started to study life sciences, I never loved 
the studies per se. I decided I'd do a master's in pathology, go into the hospital, work for a clinician in hematology, think, see what I thought of that. Yeah, I still didn't love it. You know, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I, and I hated the hospital part of it. It just seemed like there was all kinds of politics and crap that wasn't that altruistic thing that I was thinking about, right? Like, it just didn't feel like that thing that I thought. And so, you know, I was kind of at this crossroads, like, what the hell do I do now? I've been on this plan for a long time, and what do I do now? So I decided to, really on a whim to do an MBA. I rode my GMAT, like, on a whim, got a good score, you know, went in the, did my MBA at Shulik. And, and really, uh, there was a gentleman at Shulik, by the name of James Gillies, who was really transformative. I, I did finance and policy. Jim was a, a politician. He'd run a bank. He was one of the nicest people you could meet. He treated everyone with deep respect. I loved his policy classes because it got me to think differently. And, and I created a lot of chaos in those classes. And as Jim got to know me, uh, he came to me one day and said, I'm on the board of Canop Biosciences. What are you doing with your life after you graduate? And I said, I don't have a plan yet, but I'm probably going to work for some pharma company. And he said, well, you're not going to go work for ph some pharma company. You're going to go work for Connaught. And um, so I did. I went and worked for Connaught. And a year after I started working for Connaught, we got bought by Pastor Maria. And I went to the CEO. And I said, hey, Bill, um, I, I think I, I don't want to work for French company and the integration and all that stuff. I think I want to become a, a venture capitalist. And so Bill said, look, I know lots of venture capital guys. And so that's really kind of the start of my career. Bill made those introductions facilitated that for me. And, and that's how I ended up becoming a venture capitalist. No real uh, design or mission early on in the process. That's for sure. That's the best way things happen, man. I love, I love it. That, that's great. It's, uh, that's awesome. So, so let's, I, I want to level set for the audience um, before we get into things. So they'll understand where, where some of this conversation is going. I'm going to use some, some numbers. I think, I think they might be from yours. I think directionally they're right. Maybe, maybe they're, the actual numbers are wrong. But, but here's, here's what I get. So if we go back a decade, Peter, um, and we look at life science funding in Canada, we, again, maybe the specific numbers, but I think directionally it's about right. $300 million in investments in Canada in 2010 compared to $8 billion in the US, 30 deals versus 973 deals. Fast forward a decade, 2020, middle of the pandemic, biotech is all the rage, $1.1 billion in Canada compared to $36 billion in the US about 90 deals versus 1,800 deals in aggregate. So if we use a sort of arbitrary 10% metric, i.e. we're 10% of the U.S., we were batting about 3 to 4% in the U.S., both in terms of numbers and deals and funding. And now we're about 5% deal, but actually funding amount is 1.4%. What's going on? Are we, are we losing pace with the U.S. and the rest of the world? Like what's happening with life sciences? Are we holding our own? Give, give us some, some sense yeah, what's going on. Yeah, so look, you, uh, I love your numbers. And let me just give you a slightly updated version of those numbers. Globally, about 97 billion deployed in uh, in uh, life sciences venture uh, in the first uh, three quarters this year. 22% of that um, healthcare focused. Uh, it's it's the it's the largest amount of capital ever been deployed against the venture place in the U.S. 60 billion year to date, and here 1.3. So we are falling behind. The answer is we are falling behind. And and life sciences used to be kind of 10 to 12% of the Canadian venture ecosystem. It looks like we're at an all-time low. And so there's a lot of you know really good things going on. I think there's more innovation here than we've ever seen. There's more access to capital broadly than, than, than we've ever seen. But certainly domestically available capital and total capital is as a percentage of venture going down. Yeah. It, it's, wow. it's concerning. So let's unpack that. So I'm going to start with the real basics is that I think I, I've heard this so many times. I, I'm beginning to drink it as well, which is most Canadians keep saying, listen, we've got great basic science. We've got awesome infrastructure. And yet somehow this is not converting. So, so I guess the question is like, 
are we doing enough to promote commercialization in science at the academic level? Or maybe we're doing good and we still need to do that. And what can we do to improve sort of that transfer of knowledge out of academia and into sort of commercialization? What, like, what are your thoughts? Or are we there yet? And that's not the problem. Look, it's it's not a simple answer to that question. So, you know, we, we launched a, what we call a venture venture intern program. So a VIP program here to bring kids who are in the fourth year of typically a PhD in here to give them a really big window. They can sit in on deals. They can sit on our conversations around portfolio architecture. They can sit in on negotiation. Like anything that they want, we allow them to pretty much to sit in on. Um, And what I love about the people who've come into the program, and, you know, these are all pretty high-performing students, but they're already coming into this position with us thinking about being more than just an academic researcher, being more than just uh, a professor. They're thinking about how they can be entrepreneurs, how they can go go all over the world to do what they're doing, how they can start companies. They are thinking in ways that I didn't think 30 years ago. I can tell you that. Like, I, you know, I was much more linear. I was, I was either going to be a doctor or going to go into pharma. Or, you know, these students are really thinking much more broadly. So I think that's good. I think people are understanding that we can do things differently. I think one of the big challenges in Canada is that we don't think of healthcare innovation as, or, or we historically have not thought about it as something that's good. We thought about it as something that was expensive, right? That's the whole fight here, right? Everything that happens in this country is how do I save dollars around healthcare, right? So, you know, let, let's look at another example in the innovation ecosystem. When BlackBerry brought out the RIM pager, who was the earliest adopter of that technology? Governments. Governments adopted that technology very broadly, very quickly. We're huge enablers of that. And so they didn't sit around in government offices and say, you know what? We should keep using typewriters because using that BlackBerry thing is going to be more expensive. It's going to, we're going to use more data. You know, it's, it's going to, they said, hey, how do we enhance productivity and how do we enable that technology to be growing? We don't think like that in Canada. We need to put a lens on this that says, look, we, got to, we need to bifurcate between big company pharma. And I'm not saying this in a bad way. We need to bifurcate between that and innovative pharma, which is the guts of what happens in this country. And we need to say that is an an enabling thing and we need to play an enabling role in that. And that's the kind of ecosystem that's going to create more STEM jobs. It's going to create more wealth at the hospital level, at the foundation level. Um, It's going to create a virtuous circle, right? Innovation that ultimately benefits patients and broad ecosystems. We're not thinking about that. We're thinking about that for clean tech, right? We're thinking about we want to play a role in climate change. We need to think about how do we play a role in healthcare change and healthcare enablement for the next three decades, and what's going to be our role. And we have tools and we have skills to do that, but we're not thinking like that yet. So I've got a whole piece on on government kind of coming up, but I, but I want to I want to pull on that thread a little bit, Peter. Is, is one of the challenges I see as as a clinician is there's not a lot of role, and you've kind of touched on it for the healthcare system itself or stakeholders, i.e., clinicians, to help support the innovation ecosystem. Like 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 I don't even know what I would do until sort of Health Canada says, hey, this is approved, go use it. But what are your thoughts on sort of getting clinicians and hospitals specifically more involved, sort of a more of a pull strategy than a push, right? Is, is what, what might that look like? Do you have any sort of sense? Like, is yeah, that look, possible? Yeah, well, well, first, so I think there's lots of ways for that to happen. First of all, I think we have three companies in our portfolio today that are clinician founded, right? Those are the guys who stepped out of being day-to-day clinicians. One of them is still very active as a day-to-day clinician, but, but most of them have stepped out of that day-to-day role. The other part is, look, uh, you know, every single hospital is affiliated with a hospital foundation. Every single hospital fil- a foundation asks its clinicians to donate money, right? It's, you guys are big donors. I yeah. see it at the bottom of every ledger, <laughs> at every fundraiser, like, right? Big donors. And, and many of these foundations are now starting to think about how they put together innovation councils to take some of that donor money to support innovation. 
and, and I do not mean this in a derogatory way, but the people who are making those decisions know nothing about healthcare, nothing. So, you know, if, if you guys are going to put up capital, ask to be involved, ask to be part of those committees, ask how do you get to have a say in where those donor dollars get allocated to around innovation? Because you guys, frankly, know a lot more about it than a lot of those other stakeholders. I think the other part of it is, look, and, and you know, we're talking about these kind of relationships with groups like the one that you're involved with, Hello Health, become due diligence for resources, become part of our ecosystem, get more connected to guys like us so that we can understand better how to use you and you can understand better what our uh, business is. Get involved in board roles. And, and look, you know, we would happily take an MD into our venture program, to, again, to, to build more of that connectivity. So I, I think there are literally countless ways for clinicians to have more voice here. Uh, and frankly, I think it's important. I, I, I do. Like you guys are at the, at the coalface of what happens and your insights are invaluable. So that leads me to the next question then. As we build that pipeline, which, which is, I'm going to call it talent in general. You talked about sort of getting these, you know, young PhD students out, getting, you know, the ecosystem positions. I think that's perfect. Where are we now on the talent side? Does Canada, have, like, when you, when you look at companies, is there enough of senior management talent to take these companies to the next stage? Like, I'm not talking seed and series A. Where is, like, like do we have that power? Is that all still sitting in Boston, San Francisco, like Vancouver? And, and how do we grow yeah. that? Yeah, so look, it's changed a lot in a decade. We have more Canadian serial entrepreneurs in our portfolio than we've ever had. You know, we, we just had a deal meeting this morning again around another serial entrepreneur. You know, this woman is back, you know, for her third time. And look, you know, she's fantastic, right? So I think, I think we're seeing more of that. I think the pandemic has changed some of this. And, and unfortunately, this goes both ways. I think people have realized today, maybe you don't have to have everyone in one office. You can have connectivity with the person in Boston or with the person in London or with the person in Australia. And you can build your ecosystem differently than you, you know you had to. And what I would say is, I don't think we've walked away from a deal in Canada because we said we can't believe that we can put together the right team to execute against this plan. So I think there are people here, or there are people who are willing to come here, or there are people who are willing to be part of those stories that allow us today to pursue most of the things that we want to pursue. You know, again, is it perfect? No. Is it is it a Boston where you can steal ten people from just around the corner? No. Right. And, but that ultimately goes to this whole concept of building vibrant, vibrant ecosystems. Right. I mean, I, I think the government spends a lot of time worrying about how do we not lose that company to an acquisition? That's the wrong mindset. We need to think about how do we build a, a sticky ecosystem where losing any one company is irrelevant. The ecosystem is sticky and good enough and robust enough that it, it will continue to start to become a, you know, a flywheel. And we're starting to get there a little bit. You know, Vancouver, I think, is, is really on the cusp there. There's lots going on there. Toronto's getting better. Montreal's had a pretty decent story. So it's getting better in every one of those core ecosystems. This is like the chicken or the egg, right, up here. Is, is, do, do you have to build the ecosystem to attract that talent? Or and I'm, I'm picking a little bit off of thread that you guys talked about in Life Sciences BC, which is eventually they come, they like what they see, like it's great schools, it's a great country, it's safe, all this kind of jazz, and they just stay. And then eventually yeah. it builds. Like yeah, and I think what's happening now is we've got a whole generation of people who are coming back, right? There's people okay. in their 40s, 50s who are saying, "I've got family here. Look, I want to be Canadian. At the end of the day, I like the you know what it means to be Canadian. I've spent my 20 or 25 years in the U.S. I've got a great set of tools, connectivity, skill sets, relationships, but I want to come back here. I want to raise my kids here, or I want to have that next generation, or I want to be close to my parents. And so I think we're seeing much more of that than we saw a decade ago. Um, but again, it's not the entire country, right? There are some places where it's easier yeah. to attract people back right. to, yeah. but it's but it's a lot better. It right. really is. 
how important is capital in that equation? Because, because you know, we're, we're in a crazy time where people are getting like tons of money to do lots of things. Talent is scarce everywhere, not just here. How much does capital actually play a role today to bring that talent back? Capital matters a lot because nobody wants to pick up their family, change their life, uh, and then find out they're unemployed in 18 months, right? right? That, that's yeah, not exactly. what people want to do, right? And, and it matters it matters a lot when you're an ecosystem that's not a Boston, where if, if you are unemployed, there are probably a bunch that's of other true. doors you can knock on the next day, right? You know, there are, there are some of those doors here that you can knock on, but there aren't 10 or 15, right? So when you're making that decision, you have to believe there's continuity of capital, there's a vision to fund that entity. And look, everyone understands things can go off the rails, but people have to believe that there is enough capital at, at play to drive that company to success if it executes against its, its plan and vision. Right. That makes sense. So, so let's actually pull on that capital thread because that's a that's a big one here that that I see in Canada. And I'm sure you see every single day, and you're right in it, right? So, I've I, I've I've read your own record um, talking about international players and international funding as you know I'm going to call them option deals, right? That basically you have international players come in, they get the innovation, they out of the academic centers which have been non-dilutive, government funded. They eventually pull this out and they maximize outside Canada. And then we ultimately end up buying our own own stuff back again. So at the same time, um, contrary opinion that, you know, for, and I don't remember who said this, but I, I've sort of quoted it here is international capital flow is critical to the long-term growth of the sector, especially for series C and series D for clinical trials in humans or biotechnology companies and specifically related to Canada, that quote was. So I think I've said both of those things. So okay, look, <laughs> okay. I, 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 no, I want to be clear. Look, yeah. I, Look, you need. It was, it was the second quote wasn't yours, just to be clear. Yeah, so. yeah but 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 I, okay. but I think I've said both of them, okay. right? Like, okay. So I think the reality is, the Canadian ecosystem could not exist but for foreign capital, pure and simple, right? Like that's just the reality of of the situation. And again, there's there's different kinds of foreign capital, right? There's the foreign capital, which is a big pharma biotech taking an option or taking a technology very, very early on and taking it away and we never see or hear from it again. And then there's investment capital that ends up coming from foreign stakeholders to build a domestically positioned company, right? So those are two different kinds of capital ultimately, right? I think what's starting to happen is more of the innovation ecosystems, the universities, the hospitals are beginning to say, can I hold on to this longer? Can I create more value in this? And can I think about how I do something domestically? So then it comes to that second question or that second part of the capital equation that you've talked about. And what's happening in Canada over the past decade is if you look at in the IT space, everybody a decade ago used to get big chunks of their late stage capital from the US. Today, the late stage capital, you're getting 40 to 50% of that coming from domestic sources on IT deals. Right, Inovia, Omer, uh, Georgian, Novacap, CDPQ, you, you name it. Those guys are playing big roles in that late stage IT sector. If you look at a life sciences deal by comparison, a late stage life sciences deal raising 50 to 100 million, for the most part, uh, domestic capital is about 10% of that capital. Right, so, so that's a very, very big difference. And that's part of this whole disconnect around fundraising in the life sciences space and connectivity from the broader players who fund innovation in every other part of the world except for Canada. If you look at the U.S. and you look at our peer group, my peers raise anywhere from 70 to 100% of their capital from pension plans and endowments. In Canada, myself and my peers would probably raise less than 20% of our capital from that same peer group, right? That just makes it much more challenging. Right. So it so just to be clear, it sounds like the capital's there, but can't get access versus we just can't get our own capital together. So it, it is sitting there in little corners, bits and pieces, or, or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, 
Well, so look, uh, most Canadian entrepreneurs have to be much, much more creative about how they fund their companies. They have to go broader. They have to think more creatively. Even for us, look at the fund. You know, we just raised the biggest fund ever in life sciences. I raised that capital from seven different countries. I raised it from family offices. I raised it from five strategic partners, corporate entities. You know, we raised it from governments. Like, it's a very broad group of capital that we brought together. My U.S. peers don't have to do anywhere near that kind of heavy lifting. So the problem is our, our pension plan ecosystem doesn't really deploy much capital to life sciences, period, and not that much to venture. And then we don't have an endowment ecosystem with the depth of capital that you have in the U.S. So, you know, you, and, and then the other problem is up until about five years ago, most foundations or endowments actually couldn't invest in a limit partnership. And so they, they, they weren't actually able to allocate any capital to the sector. The rules changed five years ago, but they've been very slow to start to think about how they engage in our space. And, and look, the most obvious group that should be engaged are the hospital foundations because they get double bottom line, right? They get premium returns and they get to actually do what their donors want them to do, which is change patient lives. Gotcha. So, so, so if you look at sort of from, from a founder's, just so I can put in perspective for founders, from a founder perspective, doing a biotech, is there enough, and I'm talking good founders, good capital, all the other sort of I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Is there enough capital in Canada, so without international capital and without tapping those other resources to take them beyond Series A to Series B? To series, like, where do we tap out today for founders? Like, where do we need, they need to say, geez, I got to go somewhere else to grab that capital? Like, can you give me yeah, a sense so, of that? Yeah, so look, I, so I'll maybe answer that a little bit. There. Look, I think a founder from day one has got to be thinking about engaging capital from around the world. Like, I, okay. And because okay. it's about getting not just capital, but getting good partners. Yeah. Right. Sure. And so I think if you're a founder, you need to start building those relationships today. If you have a big vision, like, you know, there's, there's two or three different kinds. If your vision is you want to build a, you know, an opportunity that's a $50 million opportunity and then you're going to access, well, okay, then you don't have to do any of what I'm going right. to say. But if you have a vision to build a billion dollar business, however, we're going to define that, then you're going to have to start engaging capital across, you know, a very broad continuum. Um, I think there's enough capital to support you today in Canada to get you started and allow you to get you to really material inflection points. And and that early engagement of that Canadian capital will, will give you syndication typically to a pretty good ecosystem of other stakeholders who can come in and support that activity. But but ultimately, to really scale, you're going to have to bring in a significant amount of foreign capital. Got it. So, so some of the stuff that I've, I've been also reading around sort of this whole capital and getting access to information is, is the landscape of life sciences. Maybe this is more in the U.S. versus Canada. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Is, is changing a bit. And if I look at some of the data coming out of, um, I don't know if it's, it's, it's Bridge Bio or I can't remember where I saw this, but more ICT firms. Funding is coming in for this. I'm going to call it, quote, and I don't know if this is a euphemism, tech bio versus biotech, right? So you put AI, the whole thing in there, and they're starting to come in. And maybe, I'm not going to say push, but they're certainly coming in against traditional life sciences ventures funding. Do, is that same stuff happening here? Is it happening more? Is it happening less? Or is this, you think, just a phase? Because eventually, when we hit the bottom side of the cycle, as we always do, these guys will pull out and say, it's not for me anymore. Like, like just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think I think there's two different kinds of capital in, in the capital you just referred to, right? There There is an evolving, um, you know, I don't, I don't, a tech bio ecosystem which I think rightfully appeals to a different kind of investor, right? You know, these are software-driven companies versus yeah. deep science companies, and I mean biological science companies. Right. Look, yeah. at our core, we're a biological science company, right? That's the kind of science that we really understand, and we know how to help build, and we know how to create value in. This next set of companies are different, and so 
I think there's some companies that are just going to get funded by uh, guys who have a different view on how you create value. Then you're going to have some companies where there's a crossover between what we do and what they do. And, and we say, hey, this is symbiotic. We can bring some things to the table and you guys can bring some things to the table. And I think that's good. I think you're getting a broader you know, broader ecosystem funders. Then layered on top of that, though, is there, there's a different kind of capital, which is all these big dollar deals where you have some relatively unsophisticated players coming into the market and writing massive checks. I think that's the capital that's really at risk of mm. just vanishing, right? Got Things it. go south, that capital will go away extraordinarily quickly. Is that more later stage capital? Or are you seeing that also at the early stage, just yeah, being tends, mispriced? It, it, Tends to be later stage deals, bigger deals, you know, really companies that people think I can be IPOing this in 12 months. And so <laughs> I don't have to really stick with right. it for, for five or 10 years. I can reconcile my decision and sell my position in the open market, you know, in 12 to 24 months. And so I won't have to live with my mistake if, in fact, I do make a mistake. Got it. Are, are you are you seeing, though, is this a shift as sort of say software comes closer to biology and we move from you know, maybe discovery to design, as I would call it, is sort of, uh, you know, biology is changing a bit in terms of biotechnology and, and how people are getting to what they need to get to. Do you think that's a permanent shift? And is that going to eventually bring in different funders? I forget allocations and valuations, but just is that, a, is that or is this, again, which is just a transient blip and yeah, we're going to go back? We're, to look, we're seeing, we're seeing companies across that entire spectrum, right? I mean, the company I was just talking about earlier in the day today, it's still a biology-driven company, but it's using all kinds of computational tools and AI to make yeah. it smarter. So at its core, it's still what we feel very comfortable with, Okay. but it is using a series of tools that it did not, and, and many of our companies did not have available to them two or three years ago to hopefully get smarter, to go faster, be more efficient, have less. Like So I think that is going to continue to evolve and get better, and you're going to see companies that are pure plays on that strategy. You're going to see hybrids. I think all of that's good, right? That's yeah. how, how you would expect innovation to evolve. Fair enough. What do you think about companies like flagship pioneering co-creation? So first of all, do we even have that in Canada? And what are your what are your thoughts on on doing that? I mean, obviously, Moderna is their big success, but and they've had a bunch of others, but um, it's a different model, right? It's a different model than funding founders coming out of academia and just letting them. Go. Yeah. So that look, that model gets a lot of noise. Right. Yeah. And lots of people talk about it and lots of people. Look, let, let, let's let's just take a little step back. Right. And the little step back is this. There are about 5000 companies in the life sciences funded in the first nine months of this year. Wow. I will hardcore bet you that not more than one percent of those is a formation company. OK. Right. Yeah. So it means ninety nine percent or like, you know, something like four thousand eight hundred or more. Right. We're funded in the traditional way. So what happens is those companies get a lot of noise because it's you know, high-profile VC, good VC, flagship's a good VC. They do a splashy round. They come out of stealth. They raise $100 million suddenly. And everyone goes, ooh, look at the shiny object over there. And that's great. Like, it's yeah. great. But, but look, venture capital has, at its core, been a back-visionary entrepreneur's business, right? Mm -hmm. It's about enabling entrepreneurs to realize their vision, Right. It's about backing people with passion, engagement, who are willing to take fundamental risks that other people aren't going to take, who see the world in ways that other people don't see the world, and who are willing to push all their chips in in the middle of the table and make that happen, right? And our job is to recognize that greatness, to work with those people, and to help them achieve those objectives, right? Um, and so I think at the end of the day, true venture is still a back-grade entrepreneur's business. 
Got it. And, and again, that doesn't mean you can't do other things. Look, we, we, right. we uh, launched our Angelini Fund, uh, which is a fund where we partnered with a pharma company that is willing to go very early, like literally out of an academic environment. And so there, we are spending much more time thinking about company formation. Right. Because many of the things that we're looking at are not ready to be companies. So we're spending time digging into the IP, figuring out how we might turn this into a company. What other pieces of IP do we have to cobble around this to make this a successful strategy? So for sure, I would think most uh, VCs have – most VCs who do early stage will have some strategy around company formation where they see an opportunity that isn't being crystallized by an entrepreneur, and then they want to figure out how they put that together. Let's talk about what we all love to talk about in Canada, government for a sec here. <laughs> That's always a favorite topic. So I, I actually saw a, a presentation of yours in 2010, and uh, this was, I think you gave it in Alberta, believe it or not. And you put up a slide, which was really interesting because, again, coming new to this ecosystem, it was, it was sort of fun to see this stuff. Canada, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, uh, Canada does spend a lot per capita government dollars, but what the slide showed was that these are, I'm going to call it the Matthew effect. And I think you said, if you have no money, you ain't getting no money. And it's the idea of that it just enriches the people who already access versus in the US, there's actually dollars coming in, not sort of credits and tax incentives. Um, is that changing in Canada? Are, are we different in 2020 or this is just the same kind of show decade later, it's still happening. Where are we there? Yeah. So first of all, this is a problem with the internet, man. I can't believe you went back to a 2020 slide like that. You know, ouch is all I got to say there. Um, but you I know, like to do my homework. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. So like 2010 was a, a pretty dark time. And, and, and in high, and in hindsight, I think we now see 2010 as part of what I call the last decade. And the last decade really went from 2003 to 2013. Okay. It was, and it wasn't just a life sciences lost decade. It was a lost decade for virtually all innovation. The whole class was destroyed, and not much happened, right? And and it was that that lost decade that really started to get governments thinking about we got to change this, right? How do how do we get more capital flowing? And so you know you had the Ontario government launching programs, you had the Quebec government launching programs, then you had the feds coming in with VCAP, and you started in in 2012. You had the launch of the formal uh, venture capital action plan by the feds. And you started to engage capital really differently, and and I think since then, look, we've seen you know dozens of success, you know, Abcelera, Bayless, Synapsis, and OBF. You know, like I can go down a whole list of companies that have all come out post that time, and so I think it is, I think it is meaningfully different today than it was then because it was just dark for everyone. It wasn't just a healthcare darkness, and then I think if you layer on today what's happened with the pandemic. Um, I think this is a transformative time for life sciences, right? We've gone from virtually no one understanding us and what we do, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just a reality. Yeah, no. we, yep, you know, absolutely. we're not the guys with the you know we're not the guys with the iPads and the rim and the BlackBerry pagers. You know, what we do is yep. not stuff that you really have in your day to day life unless you get really really sick. I think a lot of that's changed, right? People have seen healthcare innovation not just as a way to save human lives, but as a way to save economies, right? That's a pretty, you know massive change. And so, you know, I think we've seen more capital formation in life sciences this year in this country. I think so far today, there's been about 750 million raised. We account for 450 of that. But but I mean, that, that's a good change. I yeah. think there's more capital going to flow into the ecosystem. Um, there's certainly more, you know, engagement around the Canada story. It's one of my frustrations that I go around and tell the Canada story, right? I, I, I talk about Canadian entrepreneurs all day long. I talk about Canadian innovation all day long. And then what I hate is the pension plans come out and say, yeah, Canada is an uninvestable asset class 
and we need to pour more money into China. I mean, no, seriously, that's hard, right? Because I go out and tell everyone in the world what I believe, which is Canada is a very investable place. We have world-class technology. We have world-class people. And we have a demonstrable track record of building globally competitive companies. And yet those guys go around telling us you can't make any money in Canada. Like, it's, it's just a weird message. Yeah, fighting on two, two ends there. Um, so, so, and I don't want you to play, play politics here, but what, what, what's, what, I mean, what's the general role of government in 2020 to help life sciences out? Like, like how can they help to readjust the playing field to make Canada do a better lift? Like, like, and, and, and my, my theory is there's no ecosystem that can be built without government. Now you may disagree with that. And so if you do, please push back. But to me, they have a role. The question is, what does that role look like? So um, first of all, I, I completely hundred, 110% agree with your statement. Right. And, and look, let's let's go to the states for one second. The entire Silicon Valley things exists because of defense spending back in the 50s. That's why, why it exists. That's true. Yeah. Right. Like that's why it exists. Yeah. Now let's look at, you know, really fast evolving ecosystems like Boston and New York. Those cities and those states are putting massive resources against building their life sciences ecosystems. The city of New York has already as a city committed a billion dollars, a billion one one city. Right. So. So government engagement is fundamental. And I think it's one of the things that Canada is extraordinarily naive about. We're so lily white and we think the U.S. is so hands off and it's just so wrong. Right. I'll give you one more example. So in the middle of the COVID crisis, um, the government said we got to support some of the innovation companies that have, have you know, hit a bump because of the COVID crisis. But but, you know, are fundamentally good companies. And, and hey, God bless them. The BDC put in place a program, 200 million or 250 million. I can't remember to support, uh, you know, VC backed companies that had hit a road bump, but that were fundamentally good companies. And they deployed that comp that capital against probably pick a number, 20, 30, 40, 50 companies in the U.S. in the U.S. during the pandemic. Um, there were significant loans made to almost 9,000 VC-backed companies. 9,000. So we did we did kind of 50. They did 9,000, right? And so this lily white kind of approach, it's just so fundamentally naive, right? It drives me crazy, right? And so so now I'll come to your question. Look, um, I think we've we've seen good programs in places like BC. You know, they've got the BC tech strategy and they have angel tax credits. I think both of those things are working in different ways, but I think they're working really well. Alberta's had AEC, Alberta Enterprise Corporation, hasn't done much in, VC, in, in uh, life sciences. It's done more in VC. It's made its first life sciences fund commitment uh, this summer. That's encouraging. Um, as a BC has BC Renaissance and, and the lower program, Ontario was one of the first programs to really step in with the Ontario Growth Capital Corporation. In 2009, it partnered with Northleaf to do a VC fund. And then three years ago, it put up a $50 million allocation just for life sciences and back funds like ours and, and other funds in the ecosystem. And it's just re-upped to that program again. And, and our new fund was a beneficiary of that again. And then, you know, Quebec's really been good at this for a longer time, right? A much broader spectrum of Quebec is engaged. You've got um, the FSDQ and Fund Action on one end, You've got CDPQ at the other end, and then you've got Investissement Quebec. And all of those stakeholders are really playing together in a pretty cohesive way to help domestic innovation. So I think Quebec you know, gets the best check marks, but other provinces are working well. I think there's lots more to do. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier. They got to stop being lily white and thinking you know, there isn't a role for them. Picking direct companies, big mistake. Like 
That's just politically driven and it's a disaster, right? But enabling best in class to go deeper and broader, uh, I think that's a, that's a success model. Gotcha. So I was actually going to lead, that was, it's funny how you led to the next question. It's sort of looking at this provincial differences between BC, Ontario, Quebec, and you know, I'm going to leave Alberta out there, although there are Calgary's coming, coming back like gangbusters. Is, is, it, is it related to, and you mentioned a bunch of things there, which is really around capital. And it seems like BC has, correct me if I'm wrong, but they have a really strong initial cluster of angel investors, people who've done it before, founders giving back. Whereas Quebec seems to have just set up a vertical just funding machine where companies just automatically know where they're going to get their next round of funding because the system has set up like that. So, you know, it's sort of a decentralized, I would say, versus a centralized system, but we can characterize it differently. Is 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 that the reason why these two you know, provinces are really punching, I'm going to say, above their weight, whatever their magical weight is? And Ontario, I mean, Ontario, I think life science is sub 8%, BC is 12% of GDP. I couldn't figure out what Quebec was, but there, there's clear disparity where life sciences play. So is that what it's about? Is sort of at the capital level? Uh, look, capital matters. Again, I think BC is kind of unique, right? And you know, I talked a little bit about it last week when yep. you know I was on a call there. But you, look, you got a legacy of success, right? It goes back a decade, you know, two decades ago. There, you know, you already had pretty successful companies being developed in BC. People like to live there. They like to stay there after <laughs> yeah. their success. No, but it matters, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and and what you have there is crossover, right? People who make their money in IT or make their money in some other sector are willing to invest in innovation in other sectors. Look, that really, really matters. Part of that's driven by the tax credits, right? The tax credits enable that behavior because people are incented to do it and they're incented to, and and then the people care about their ecosystem. They care about making BC better and they care about making the province stronger because they want to live there and they want it to be successful, right? There, there's that continuity of engagement. So I think, I think that that's really important. You know, again, I think Quebec, it, you said it quite well, they've got a nice silo. They've got ecosystem engagement. And what they've been able to show, I think, is, look, the a lot of the other pension plans argue you can't have a regional strategy because it'll drive suboptimal returns. If you look at the performance of F, uh, Fund Action, FSTQ, CDPQ versus their Canadian peer group, they're punching at their weight or better than their weight. So the argument you can't have a, a local or domestic strategy as part, it's a part of a broader strategy is absolute crap. And those guys are proving that that's the case. And then if you think about the ancillary benefits that come out of that, right, in terms of employment, taxation, next generation jobs, all those things, you know, that's that's a multiplier effect that nobody's really accounting for in those provinces. Well, I think the provinces like Quebec are accounting for it and that's why they're doing it. You know, I, th I think one of the things that government should start thinking about next is giving tax credits to family offices and individual investors who want to invest in funds because, and I, it sounds it sounds self-serving, but I'm going to tell you why I don't think it is. Um, I think if you do that, first of all, it allows those family offices and non-institutional stakeholders to build portfolios. And this is a portfolio business, right? It's hard to win by one investment. You really want to be in a portfolio. And so it allows these people to come into portfolios and make portfolio investments. I think the other advantage that is you get more breadth of capital and more engagement of sophisticated investors. So that means more companies get funded, more jobs get created, and the probability of positive outcomes goes up. And what does a positive outcome mean? Taxes for the government. So I actually think that's a virtuous circle, right? If you create more high value jobs and you create more wins, that creates more capital gains. It means the tax credits you gave up at the front, you get back in the back. And so again, I think that's like the VCAP program. The VCAP program works because it's a virtuous circle. You invest in best in class, those managers do their jobs, the money comes back, you get to recycle it. And that's 
how I think you need to think now about how you fund and go deeper at a government level. Right. So one of, and I don't know, I don't, you know, again, you're going to know this more than I do, but I know some of the mandate of, of the larger institutions in Quebec is to invest in Quebec. Is that a good or bad, is that a good or bad thing you think in, in general? When we look at the Canadian ecosystem, right? I mean, I get why they do it provincially. What, what's your thoughts about just that? I mean, arguably that's probably I, why I, look, I think Quebec it's been fantastic. Yeah. I think it's been fantastic for Quebec, right? I mean, look, we talked to CBQ is one of our investors. So, you know, um, but, but their returns from being an investor in next generation innovation that's domiciled in Quebec have been fantastic, right? Yeah. And look, think about it. Venture was, I think you said it, a $1 billion asset class a decade ago in this country. It looks like it's going to be a 12 or $13 billion asset class this year. So to, to not have participated in that is what I would call a fundamental fail. Yeah. Those guys yeah. have. Right. They have right. not missed. So their pensioners have benefited from that participation as that ecosystem has grown and expanded and profited. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Where, where, where do angels fit in this, Peter? Like, I mean, angels are part of the part of the continuum. But I guess there's there's sort of and we're not picking anyone in general, but but I'm just sort of thinking there's two ways to look at it. Absolutely. They're necessary. But do they maybe from a life sciences perspective, which are higher risk, larger dollars, do they tend to, you know, let's just say overreach sometimes and maybe give wrong signals to other investors? That's the sort of way I look at it, right? I mean, it's just, and it's so scattered. Like, how do how do angels play within life sciences specifically? I think it's a bit different when we're looking at ICT, you know, 12 months, maybe 18 months, another round. They, it's, it's a much faster pace. How do, how do yeah, they play so, in life sciences? So, so lots of questions there, and I'm going to tackle a couple of them. First of all, I don't think the risk profile is any different between ITC and, and um, life sciences. In fact, the data would suggest that, I, that life sciences is simply better. Faster time to liquidity, less fundamental failures. So, you know, again, I, I think there's some data that, you know, that says that's not the issue. So the, let's go to your specific question, though. Um, look, companies like Iranian Zymeworks in our portfolio, you know, they got angel money early. It was core, core to allowing them to move forward and execute against their plan. So I, I think it's an important part of the ecosystem. And there are a few early stage companies that we get involved in where we don't see some angel investor capital. Now, here's the challenge. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when pitching uh, angels and family offices, either uh, consciously or unconsciously, don't really lay out a full roadmap. So I was, and I won't, I won't pick on yeah, a Canadian okay. company, yeah. but I'll pick on a US company here. So I, I was got I got called by a family office to sit in on a on a pitch yesterday from a U.S. company, and I won't mention their name, but they had already raised three hundred million from family offices. Three hundred million. Wow, it's a lot of money, family offices. And they and they were and and so when when the, the company went through their pitch and and, and they didn't they hadn't said that at the front of the pitch. So I asked, how much of your money have you raised? Three hundred million. What what's the valuation on which you're raising this round? A billion. How much more money is it going to take for you to get to break even? Three hundred million. And so, you know, a couple of the family offices come back to me afterwards and like, holy crap, right? Like, I, I don't want to be on that bus, right? And, and rightfully so, they shouldn't be on that bus because that's probably right. not a bus that's going to get to a happy place, right? And so, I think one of the challenges is not understanding how much capital it, it takes to get to success. I think the other challenge is putting your heart ahead of, again ahead of your money because one of the great things about our space, right, is if we do our jobs, we change people's lives. So it's easy to invest for passion, right? But that's also a way to make mistakes, right? And and so getting drawn into a story because it's going to change, you know, someone's life for a rare disease or getting, you know, it's going to change someone's, uh, you know, cancer pathway. 
those are really easy ways to get drawn in, but they're really potentially very dangerous ways to overpay and to underestimate how much capital and time is going to be required to get to a successful transition point. And so I think that's the challenge. And again, that's why we spend a lot of time trying to talk to family offices and engaging with investors in the ecosystem. I want you there. I don't want you to get burned because I want you to be there again and again and again. Right. That's, you know, and again, I think sometimes people think, oh, the mean venture guys want to come in and just down round everybody. It's not that right. We're, we just have a lot more experience understanding how much capital is going to be required. What are likely to be the inflection points? When are we likely to be able to get to some kind of transition in value? And and that gets all factored into our thinking process. And unfortunately, if you've overpaid, we're going to have to have a conversation around that. So I think that's the challenge. But but look, we love that capital and we think it's a, a core. And that's why, again, I'd love to see more tax incentives for those people, right? Give them give them a break up front. So if they overpay a little bit, they, they, you know, they, they make it up in the long run and it doesn't matter, right? Things like that, I think, are highly accretive to the ecosystem. No, that's good. What, what do you think about venture philanthropy for biotech? How does that how does that sort of resonate with you or not resonate with you? Like, like yeah, so so look, the easy answer is I love it, but that's not the right answer, okay. right? So, <laughs> right. Well, it's not so, right because so a lot of the hospital foundations now are, are are raising what they call venture philanthropy funds, right? That's, and it, it it's around helping move some of the things forward. So if I just want to be completely Machiavellian, I say okay, knock yourselves out, spend your money. And then if you go somewhere forward, that's great. Then I can jump in. And if you don't, it's not my money. That's really not the right way because I'd rather have that capital really understand how it can maximize its value and, ma and maximize its impact, right? And so if you put a venture philanthropy lens on it, then what you don't do is think about, is this the most efficient or most impactful way to use this capital? Because you said on day one, you're writing it off. Right, and yeah. And I think that, that going into these things with that, if you're going to do that, just donate the money to the hospital. Right, like at some some level, if you just want to write it, I think if you're going to allocate capital to the innovation ecosystem, then you have to allocate it in a way that you think is going to drive an optimal set of performance returns. Right, getting that product or that thing to the patient as quickly and efficiently as possible, because failure leads people to believe that you can't succeed. Mm. Right, if okay. if if a foundation puts ten million dollars into into ten projects and all of them fail, then what's the message? This is an unfundable business. Right. You can never do this again. You know, right. successful business person, you've learned from that venture philanthropy model that this is a way to throw money out the window. Right. I, I don't want people to have that message because I don't believe that. We don't believe it. And we obviously, you know, we demonstrate that that's not the case. Right. So right. Uh, <laughs> it's a mix. Right. I yeah. You know, I want that capital engaged. I want those people engaged. I'd rather not have them think about just throwing it away. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. So, so it has a role, but you got to figure out what that role is. Perfect. So I, I think I'm going to want, want, you know, we'll get into the end, but I want to talk about your favorite topic, which is, which is reports on ecosystems. So I'm going to jump to, to, to the, back to 2015, report by, by Naylor calling Unleashing Innovation. And I read the report, but one line stood out with me, and this may not be so, so aversive to you, but I, I just want to quote it and get your thoughts on it. The, the quote was, this rapid cycle, and it's talking about precision medicine, creates enormous potential for discoveries that can be commercialized. But in the era of intense competition, other jurisdictions, referring to outside of Canada, are unlikely to buy Canadian biotechnology if the product cannot achieve domestic market entry. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Not so, a, <laughs> not on the, so, on, the com on the comment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so look, I'm going to tie the comment with with the report though, because sure. they, okay. they they stem from each other. So, first of Fair all, enough. if you're going to create a roadmap for innovation, then it would be great if you at least included healthcare innovators in that conversation. 
look, every one of the people on that committee were fabulous people. They're accomplished in their own right, but not one of them was an entrepreneur. Not one of them started a healthcare company. Not one of them had put capital at risk in building a healthcare innovation ecosystem. And if you look into the consultation group, they didn't consult with VCs. They didn't consult with CEOs. They didn't consult with founders. They, they broadly consulted with some of the stakeholder groups, but they didn't actually talk to the people who are putting this stuff at the coalface or doing this stuff at the coalface. So I think that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge to have a report when you don't talk to the, you know, it's like not talking to your customers, right? It's like launching a product and not having talked to one of your customers, right? So that's the problem. So, but, but let's now unpack the actual terminology. So I think there's two different things here. And I think the, the quote confuses two different kinds of concepts, right? If you're talking about persistent medicine oncology, let, let's just use that as an example. No offense, but adoption in Canada is going to make next to no difference, right? Because just because Canada buys it, woohoo! Look, that company is going to have to compete globally. It's going to have to put its data in front of every regulatory process in the world. Its customer base is going to be somewhere else, and it's not going to matter. Here's the perfect example. Abcelera developed a product that the Canadian government wrote a $20 million check for, right? They bought $20 million of their first monoclonal antibody. Well, unfortunately, that monoclonal antibody didn't work. Right? They partnered it with Lilly. The, the, the two together worked a little bit, but the drug on a standalone basis didn't work. And so the government bought $20 million of nothing. So just because the government bought that money, but but now let's go into another sector. Let's go talk about Bayless Medical as an example. So company never raised any ventures. So it's a great just bootstrap story. Chris Shaw talked all the time about the lack of domestic adoption of his product. Right? He had 30 plus million in sales globally before he had a dollar of sales domestically, right? He talked about that, the lack of, you know, adoption, early adopters. We have a company called Opsons, which has an FFR wire. Same thing. We're now doing 35 million in sales globally. I think we've got some key accounts in Quebec, but Canada has been a hugely late adopter there. In those kind of companies, early adoption would have been amazing. And it would have been like the BlackBerry story, right? Because those are validating orders. Those are KOL orders. Those are really the kind of orders that provide cash flow, continuity, validation. And it's the same for MedTech, right? Or, uh, sorry, for digital health. Adoption of digital health can make a huge difference in how those companies present them, right? Because so, if you get 10 Canadian hospitals and those hospitals you know, are, are operating like their US peers or their Australian peers or their UK-based peers, then they become leverageable models. So I, I think it's a bit of a confusing statement. It's not a solution for one, one fits all. But again, the challenge in Canada has been if you're a medtech company and you have a standalone product like Bayless or Opsins, all the Canadian hospitals are, are buying their stuff on a bundle. And they're buying the stuff on a bundle from a big player who doesn't want the little player in the door. And they're pricing it such that if you break the bundle, you lose your optimal pricing. So that's the stuff that we have to get our head around. We have to create an, an environment where, you know, like the Americans are great at this, right? What's, what's their mantra right now? Buy America. In, in healthcare innovation, particularly for MedSec and, and for a digital, we have to have a concept that says buy Canadian. And I'm not saying like buy crappy stuff, buy good stuff, like stuff where this really is based on the data, best in class products or equally competitive products. Let's be proud about putting Canadian stuff in our patients and in our bodies and on our shelves, right? And we don't think like that. And we don't, and the problem is our hospitals aren't incented to do that, right? Because you've been in the hospital environment long time. You save a dollar, it goes back into the ecosystem to somewhere else, right? Right, like that's the problem. So that's not good. And 
you know, unlike U.S. hospitals where they compete based on saying, I have the best innovation, I have the best technology, therefore come to my hospital because they're driving for more rep. Well, there's no incentive here for a Canadian hospital to compete based on getting more revenues because they're capped. They're only getting so much money to run that hospital. They actually don't want more patients. Right, it's a problem, right? That's yeah. not like that's not right. the system here, right? Yeah, incentives are perverse. The incentives yeah. don't work, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to realign your incentives if you want to have a bi Canadian agenda. And I think we should have a bi Canadian agenda in specific categories. And I know you're saying Canadian, but just to be clear, does that have to happen at a federal level? Because I think the challenge here that I hear from founders is yeah, I get passed Ontario from reimbursement. But now I got to do the same thing in Quebec, and then I got to do the same thing in BC, and then I got to do the same thing in yeah, Alberta, but, and then I got like, <laughs> just, yeah, so. Keep, so so look, it's, it, a it, it's a it's a it's a great question. Yeah, you still have to do the same thing in the U.S. Just because yeah, you get so on one hospital, yep. yeah, it's state by state or it, yep. or it's hospital group by hospital group. Look, the reality though is if you get on the Ontario formulary, now you can you know sell yep. to a pretty broad. So I'm yep. not sure that that's legit. Like I'm I'm okay. less because look, if you're competing global, you're going to have to do that you know everywhere you go, Several right? Times, yeah. And yeah, yeah, and it's just part of the process of being good. Um, and look, you can focus your priority. You get Ontario, Quebec. You've got most of the, you know, you got the biggest okay. chunk of customers yeah. in the country, and yeah. yeah, you can get the other guys if you need them. But if you get validating orders out of those two provinces, you're probably well down the road in achieving yeah. your objectives for leverage. And they'll probably fall in eventually, assuming you show some benefits as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, if you have so a good product, it, it yeah. will scale. Yeah, that makes sense. So just mindful of the time, we're almost at the end here. What what domains are you looking at in life sciences that might be a little bit too early now, but that is you're really excited for? looking out three to five years that you're thinking, you know what, this domain, this is really going to be interesting, but we're not quite there yet. But do you have anything that's yeah. sort of on the horizon of things, not companies, but just general? Yeah. yeah. So you talked about one of them, you know, I think truly digital AI driven therapeutics platforms. Okay. That's going to look, there's lots of them out there today. Yeah. Not, not lots of noise, but, but it's, but that's going to filter down. And I think we're going to see some transformative plays there. So we're looking at that. We're spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I, th I think, also, truly transformative diagnostics platforms. Look, there's lots out there. It's been a horrible space for investors to make money at, you know, investing in the diagnostic space. It's just not been compelling. But I think there are going to be truly, truly transformative diagnostics platforms that are going to be great companions to thinking about how you actually, you know, deploy certain drugs into the ecosystem, right, in terms of, you know, maximizing patient outcomes. I think there's a bunch of psychiatric disease opportunities that we're starting to think about more deeply. And then finally, things like senescence and aging. Um, we're starting to spend more mm, time thinking about yeah. that and looking at that. So, And there'd, there'd be probably a bunch of other things that some other people on my team have got in their hip pocket that they're right, spending right. time thinking about. Those are some of the big things that we're spending time on today early, but that I don't think we're going to probably deploy capital against in this fund, but that we may well deploy capital against in our next fund. Gotcha. Around the mental health, I can't help but ask, but thoughts on cannabis and psychedelics, which seem to be sucking dollars out of out of ecosystems for good or for bad. I'm mean, I'm just curious what you're. I, I mean, I know someone again in life sciences made that comment, which, which that you know that's the big element. Yeah, so in the ca room, cannabis sucked, sucked an, an an immense amount of capital out of the ecosystem broadly. Yeah. You probably know cannabis better than yep. me, so I'm not going to talk about cannabis too much. But <laughs> academically, but people, like, academically. <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah, exactly, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there. Yeah. Just to be clear, um, but but uh, look, psychedelics. It's it's interesting, right? I think we've seen some of the first data. Real clinical data came out this week. I think there was some real clinical data suggesting certainly some efficacy. You know, maybe a little bit of a disturbing uh, side effect profile. You know, it's not a great outcome if you if you kill more people on the way to yeah. helping some people feel better, right? That's not really where you want to go. I think we're going to see some products in the psychedelic space like, that are probably going to be real, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's one or two in the cannabis space that have turned out to be real and epilepsy and things like that where yeah. I think there's real. So 
selectively, but again, in, in, in the context of a very broad ecosystem of things to do, they are two relatively narrow things. And again, we spend yeah. some, we spend very little time, if no time, on cannabis. We are certainly looking at psychedelics. We're seeing a little bit more engage, engagement uh, from the farming guys into the space. There's all yeah. kinds of intellectual property issues because obviously the, the base compounds have been around forever. Um, and so how you think about building proprietary and then, you know, and then the thing is, as soon as you deviate and you start changing the molecular structure, you're building NCEs and then those NCEs can have all the safety issues that, you know, are, are any other novel drug does. So this concept that you can take these things through the clinic, you know, lickety split with no problem. I think that's really super naive, right? right. Uh, like, I, you know, we don't believe that the, the further you start to build intellectual property around these things, the more you're going to have challenges in the clinical pathway ahead. But look, there are going to be some real businesses there. Uh, we, we don't have much doubt about it, but there's so many other things that we can do with our capital. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a very small part of our focus. Awesome. awesome. So, so Peter, the final question I like to ask everyone, sir, because everyone's got a relationship to, to the health system here is, you know, we're trying to make things better. We're, do, we're, we're trying to innovate, but, but the reality is, I mean, the health system doesn't totally suck. So, so if, if, as you look forward sort of three to five years, if you want to make sure that one thing does not change, in our healthcare system today, what would that be? Uh, it's, Everything it's else really can change, but just the one thing. It, it, well, uh, two things: In, okay. inclusive, inclusivity, and access. It's just Fair. fundamental to, for me, right? Look, again, you, you may not know this. Um, you know, I, I developed Guillain Barre, became paralyzed in 24 hours, uh, oh, wow. two and a half years ago. Okay. And so I went into our healthcare system, you know, a real patient, right? ICU for 10 days at Sinai almost 40 days of recovery at Bridgepoint. And look, no special treatment. You know, I was in with the entire continuum of the city of Toronto and, and I loved it. Like the fact that, you know, everyone beside me was from everywhere in the city and it reflected the reality of inclusivity and access. I think that's so important, that's right? Um, yeah. So that's the one thing I would not want to see change. I think it's fundamentally important. Yeah. And I, th I think that's exactly what everyone loves about the Canadian healthcare system. It's just like you said, right? You started the conversation with saying you don't go bankrupt having to access the healthcare system, which yeah. is a huge savior. Yeah. Yeah. Canadians, I, I don't think appreciate what a, a real thing that is in the U.S., right? The number of families who then, go, you know, who go through a tragedy and then become financially bankrupt managing that tragedy, right? It's incredible, right? And the fact that, you know, nobody here, like, you know, you, you know, like, <laughs> I had preemie twins. There's a $300,000 bill, right? Wow. Like, you know, yeah. I just went through, you know, 45 days of care, right? That's a massive bill, 10 days in an ICU, right? Like if you it think about those things, those are massive bills, right? And if yeah. you're in the U.S. and you don't have insurance and you don't have all the good things that you and I happen to have, uh, those are things that bankrupt and break your family. That's true. No, that's absolutely. This was an absolutely fundamental hour. Thank you very much. I think we've covered a ton. I could keep going, but, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a bit of a break from me. But but if people do want to keep up with with you, Peter or Lumera, like like what's the best way to stay in touch with you guys? Like what you're doing, what you're looking at. Just obviously not the details of it, but just at, at a high level, what's the best way to keep in touch? Yeah, look, so we're 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 trying to get much better with all of our social media stuff, and you'll see more and more of it. And and but look, if you really want to get a hold of me, and there's some reason you want to do that, my email is plv at lumera.vc. And I will you know, always really, you know, make my best effort to respond. I can't guarantee that I'll respond always within 24 hours, but I certainly try. And and if you put in a mean, meaningful subject line, so I have contact, <laughs> well, you know, because I get a lot of spam, right? So I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to avoid, you know, the yeah. spam that I'm trying to ignore, yeah. like, you know, to save my life. I think I got 100 pieces of spam a day, right? So, yeah. so I say put in a meaningful, personalized subject line so that I can recognize this as an email I should open up and look at. 
you know, I'll try and do that or, or I'll hand it off to someone else on our team. Right. I mean, look, awesome. we, we think engagement's important and, you know, these kind of conversations are important. So thank you for taking the time today. Oh, thank you. No, I love it. Perfect. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I mean, I look forward to doing this again. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.